Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 17th, we are studying Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46. More of Jesus' opponents line up in an attempt to test him. Jesus expertly avoids their traps and teaches the truth down to the very central truth of God's word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have a panoply of pious pastors prepared to proclaim the Prince of Peace. Wow. Was that too much? That was excellent. Way too much. That was for St. Patrick, oh, March 17th. Dear. Oh, of course. Yes. Today we have with us Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, Pastor Dustin Beck of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas, and Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Welcome, gentlemen. Top of the morning to you. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, sir. All right, we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, the end of the chapter today. Pastor Beck, could you get us started with a bit of context? I think I could do that. Thanks. Yeah. So we're uh, we're Tuesday of Holy Week right now. Um, we're right in the uh, you know in the middle of Jesus's um, time in Jerusalem, going towards the cross. This is uh, the day in specific when Jesus is uh, is being tested and tried. Uh, by all of his opponents. Um, he's already, uh, in yesterday's uh, scripture lesson, uh, he was challenged by the Herodians and Pharisees. Today, we're going to see the Sadducees and the Pharisees again. Um, it seems like all of his opponents are sort of putting him through the gauntlet um, just to to kind of test him, to try him, to see if he really is um, all that he's cracked up to be, all that he has said that he is. It's almost like he's running through a gauntlet. Um, and I don't, I don't know. Is it is it an appropriate time to talk about the significance in terms of the Passover? Yeah, this is early. This yes. is early in the but talk. But it is, it is the week of the Passover. It's the week of the Passover, and I mean, this is maybe this is a little bit more reading into the text. But this is uh, the day, uh, the tenth day of Nisan, uh, the first month, which uh, according to Exodus twelve, this is the day that they were to select uh, the lamb for the Passover. Uh, now, they would select it, and then over the course of the next uh, three days uh, until the 14th day, um, they would inspect it and make sure that it was without blemish, that it was uh, the suitable lamb to be sacrificed for the Passover. Um, and so we almost we see a picture of that here um, and Jesus being tried and tested uh, by these Pharisees and Sadducees. Obviously, they don't have um, uh, they don't have Jesus's, um, you know, the, the trying and testing of him uh, for his holiness at stake here. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him in his words. Uh, but it begins uh, this uh, this uh, Passover motif, this theme that's going to carry out through uh, throughout the week, uh, preparing uh, that Jesus will be the one who will ultimately make that sacrifice. Uh, he will lay down his life for us. Uh, and so we're going to see a couple of questions uh, that come from the Sadducees, from the Pharisees. And then Jesus is going to ask a question of his own. So to put it in terms of Exodus 12, Jesus is proving himself or showing himself to be that lamb without blemish or spot, the perfect lamb. Yeah, I think that's a way we can read this text for sure. All right, good. Anything else to add on the con context before we just jump right in? All right, we got a lot of verses to cover today, so I'm going to go ahead and read them for us. We're starting here in Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46. So the first, the first opponents in this text that line up to go at Jesus are the Sadducees. And it's been a while since we've seen the Sadducees. Pastor Hill, tell us a little bit about this group in first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, the Sadducees were the second most prominent Jewish religious sect, the Pharisees, which we'll hear about later, being the most prominent amongst them. And the defining belief of the Sadducees is exactly what Matthew brings to light for his readers in verse 23. The Sadducees um, say that there is no resurrection. They believe that their religious obligations, their religious performance is good in this world only, in other words. Uh, they don't believe uh, in much beyond what you, you can see and affect today. So I suppose the good of what they would have religiously was to, to provide them some kind of temporal benefit without the hope of an eternal benefit. And when you research their beliefs a little um, more deeply, what you'll find out is that they didn't particularly long for a Messiah in the way that um, other groups did, such as the Pharisees or just the common believers in that day. Um, and they didn't believe in angels or spirits. And the other defining belief was that their canon of Scripture, what they believed to be authoritative out of the Old Testament, was confined only to the five books of Moses. Um, the Pharisees, if we can see them as the ancient equivalent of maybe the harsh religious fundamentalists that we might have today, we could perhaps see the Sadducees as the ancient equivalent of maybe some modern intellectual elites, in a sense. So here, here are the Sadducees, this, uh, these religious elites, the, the liberals of the day, denying a good chunk of, of the Old Testament, not believing in the resurrection, not believing in angels, and they come to Jesus with this, what may seem to us a bizarre scenario. Uh, Pastor Beck, what's the, what's the background of this scenario that they lay out for Jesus? Yes, it actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 25. 
Moses gave uh, essentially that if a man and a woman got married and uh, before they had children, uh, the man died, <clears throat> the widow was instructed to marry or to take uh, the, uh, the brother of the deceased man. It's a practice called leveret marriage. Um, it actually still takes place in some uh, some places in the world. Uh, it sounds a little bit strange to our 21st century American ears. Uh, but the idea was that um, through the brother of the deceased man, uh, the offspring uh, would carry three things. First of all, um, uh, would be able to, uh, to be uh, born and raised up to support uh, his mother, uh, formerly widowed. Um, that he, uh, the name of his father would continue on. This has a big deal, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot to say in terms of, uh, of uh, the lineage, um, you know, uh, in, in Israel, in the Old Testament especially. It's all tied to your family name, uh, the tribe that you come from, and then the clan that you come from, the family that you come from, et cetera, uh, so that his name wouldn't be blotted out uh, from the face of the earth is the way that uh, it's put in Deuteronomy. Uh, but then the other thing is that, um, remember, Deuteronomy is sort of the, um, it's the precursor, it's the, the text right before we go into the promised land. So Joshua is, is coming next. Um, and the big thing that happens in Joshua is that the promise given to Abraham that there would be land, um, the land on which you are you are treading, you are sojourning, will belong to your offspring. Um, that land would go to uh, the people of Israel, to the tribes, to the clans, to the families. Um, and so the idea would be that that inheritance that God had given to them, um, that it wouldn't just go to somebody else, but it would sort of stay in the, um, the deceased father's name, if that makes sense. Right. So it has it has implications uh, on a practical sense in terms of land. It has in implications in, in a theological sense in terms of the lineage, um, because, I mean, ultimately, um, at least once in Jesus's uh, in Jesus's own lineage, I think twice, actually, um, this lever at marriage um, actually takes place where somebody has to do the duty of their brother um, to raise up a child. Um, and so it's, you know, for us as Christians, we can look at it and say, that's a very strange practice in the Old Testament, um, something that kind of makes us shake our heads and chuckle maybe a little bit like, wow, that's kind of backwards. Uh, but that's part of the story of how uh, how God sent Christ into the world for us. Yeah, and it's good for us to put a name on that, too. That's that's Ruth and Boaz in particular. Returning from the nation of Moab, we have Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who comes back to the land of Israel, and that closest living relative that would engage in the Leveret marriage was Boaz. And that's how that falls into the lineage of Jesus. And that's that's one of those those Bible stories we grow up hearing all of our lives. And that's actually the, the specific thing that we're talking about today with these seven imaginary brothers and this one woman. You called them imaginary brothers there, Pastor Casper. This is, as, as we've said, this is a legitimate institution that God has given, leveret marriage. But you're saying the the Sadducees are just making stuff up here. The, this is not a this is not a sincere question. In other words, it's plausible that this is based on some sort of reality, but it's highly unlikely that this set of circumstances would transpire exactly as they lay out. Okay, so so this may or may not be a a, a realistic, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but still, they're coming to Jesus with an insincere question. This is not. They really don't want to know anything about leveret marriage in particular well rather, of course not they know everything there is to know okay so they they're really trying to show something else this is not about leveret marriage as much as it is about the resurrection correct 
Yes, sir. Elaborate, please. What's I mean? What are they trying to What are they trying to get at here? Well, the it, the the ridiculousness of the question really delves into where they live theologically. They don't acknowledge the resurrection, so of course their question is the most fanciful, most ridiculous example they can possibly come up with to demonstrate that clearly you don't really believe in the resurrection, do you? You wouldn't actually say that that's a thing because here's this crazy example of something that could never happen and the only answer that's legitimate is well we don't really believe in the resurrection yeah that's a that's a perfect point and i think one that is brought up to us quite a bit as well you know um people might ask you oh yeah you believe that you're going to go float around on clouds and in heaven forever and play a harp for eternity right people will come and look at you and and take your sincere belief in and the life that is promised us life eternal and make it uh, sound as if it is a caricature and then knock down the caricature itself rather than, than the actual teaching. Um, so the move that, that the Sadducees make with Jesus that day is still very much alive today. Hmm. What, I mean, what about, so <clears throat> they're being insincere here. They, they don't really want to know about leveret marriage. Who's, who's, you know, who's with who in the resurrection. But sometimes this is a, a question that Christians will ask today. A, a beloved husband dies, and the widow wants to know what what will that be like in the resurrection when Christ comes again. Does does this text have something to say to that? I think it has uh, quite a bit to say to that. In fact, this is a text that I think if um, if we look at it closely, we're reminded of of the reality that that death is such a terrible thing. It severs the most intimate of relationships. And these um, Sadducees that come and they just say, oh yeah, one died and then the other and then the other and the other. If that really happened, I mean, can you imagine the trauma that that would have been to yeah. this woman, the terrible experience it would have been? Um, as Christians, sometimes we're so comfortable, I suppose, with the idea of death being the, the gateway to eternal life for us that we might not always, until we're in the midst of it, um, give the proper attention to the depths of, of grief. And this question of whose husband will she be in the resurrection, it echoes questions that people today often have when they've suffered the death of, of a spouse. Um, the questions today aren't necessarily posed exactly in the same way, but it might be the question of, well, next to whom should I be buried? Right. Which Which spouse? The one with whom I had children, the one with whom I shared my later years, uh, perhaps the one after that. Uh, it's a very um, difficult question. And the way that you can come to resolution here is not by giving some uh, textbook answer. It's by, by listening to the concerns that that fellow Christian has, praying with them, and ultimately pointing to the reality of, of the fact that our ultimate hope is not in the familial relationships that we have in this world, but in the relationships that in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, um, that when we arrive there, it will all be um, focused on him rather than on um, what we had in this world and lost. Yeah. And I, I perfect point that, uh, that pastor Hill makes um, <clears throat> in the parish that uh, I serve as I know, as well as pastor Hill, um, uh, we both have cemeteries uh, right next to our, our, our churches, you know, and that's, that's a real concern that people have, um, you know, and uh, just recently I, um, I saw um, a, an individual who was um, at the uh, the graveside of uh, his deceased spouse, 
his deceased wife. Um, and, uh, you know, he is remarried now. And, you know, it was he was there on the anniversary of his first wife's death. And it was it was just such a such a difficult conversation, uh, obviously, for him to have um, because he's he's happily married. But you can just see that um, what he had um, and he's he's grieving for what he had, but at the same time celebrating what he has. Um, and so I think that the uh, as Pastor Hill alluded, the the importance here is to stress um, that it's going to be OK because Jesus is Lord. Right. Um, that the the, the risen one um, is going to sort this out in the resurrection, that um, our relationships with one another. Um, and that's not to say that we won't know one another in in the resurrection. Right. Uh, <clears throat> there's, uh, I think that there's good indications that we will still uh, know one another. But the important thing is not how we know one another or how we relate to one another. The important thing is how we relate to Jesus and how he relates to us. I think that's the, that's the hope of the resurrection is, uh, is, and, and not, you know, not uh, opening ourselves up to that, uh, that caricature of, you know, playing harps in the sky, although that does sound kind of not so bad. Right. Uh, but the idea is that there is a resurrection and that it's better than any of us can imagine. Um, and so we put our hope, our, uh, our trust in the fact that Jesus will take care of that. Right, right. We would we would start from the resurrection of the dead as the reality right. to which we're looking forward, rather than the Sadducees' approach, which is to deny the resurrection altogether. Yeah, and and I think one of the they deny the resurrection. That's obviously a huge problem. But but what Jesus is going to help us see is that what they're trying to do is they're trying to work from this life and what is true for this life, and then equate that with what would be true in the resurrection if it were to be true. And because in their mind, those two things don't go together, therefore they're going to deny the resurrection. Yeah. It's, um, where, Pastor Apple, where is it that, uh, that St. Paul says, uh, you're, you're being, you're, you're thinking merely humanly, you know, in human terms. Um, I'm the one that asked the questions. You're the one that asked the <laughs> questions. Well, so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, Paul says that at one point, and I don't. I didn't look it up. I think Pastor Hill is Pastor is, Hill's feverishly looking, looking up. that up. But I think that that's kind of what we've got here: is that the Sadducees are thinking in merely human terms, right? This question is invalid in a place where death no longer exists. Um, if death is the expectation, then it's a. I mean, even though it's outlandish, and I, I got to say, Pastor Casper said that this is about as outlandish as it could get. Eight brothers would have been more outlandish. <laughs> right but uh so they yes, uh, but there were not seven brides yeah that okay 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 <laughs> anyways I don't, I don't know where he's going with that seven brides for seven brothers that's exactly oh, where i was okay. headed with that all right okay that's a musical okay. reference for anybody listening i'm not very musical okay anyways so if you're if you're speaking from a context that death is a part of life right which is what the world likes to do if you're speaking from there um, then this isn't all that outlandish uh, because where will she be buried when she dies uh, is about as far as the Sadducees will get um, but if you're speaking from the perspective of Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life if you're speaking from the perspective of, of the one who comes that he may lay down his life only to take it back up again well then then this question is completely absurd. You're focusing on the wrong part of the story here um, because Jesus is coming to usher in a life that has no death, right? The very same uh, passage when Jesus says, I'm the way, or, uh, rather, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die, right? And that will never die thing, uh, I think that's maybe the best answer to give to this to a Sadducee is that, hey, um, Jesus is coming to bring life. 
why are you guys so so stuck on this idea of death so take us then into Jesus' answer. He, he comes on, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great, great way to, what, what does Jesus do in response? How does he address this insincere question? Pastor Hill. Yeah, what Jesus does here is he um, indicts their insincerity as well. Um, he says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what he's, he's doing here are a couple of things. Number one, he's saying that their knowledge of the scriptures is deficient, which is quite a charge to lay at these Sadducees who know the scriptures quite well, chapter and verse, and wouldn't have needed to Google the reference Pastor Beck made a moment ago, as I did. Um, it's Romans 619, by the way. Uh, I knew it. Um, but at any rate. I was going to guess 1 um, Corinthians. Same here. They, they, they knew the Torah very well, um, but they've denied the rest. So their knowledge of the scriptures is deficient in that sense. Um, but their knowledge of the scriptures that they have is a faithless knowledge. It's one that doesn't look in a sincere faith um, towards the promises that are to come. And those promises don't only come in the prophets um, and the writings, but they come in the Torah itself. Um, and then in his, his answer, he, he gives verse 30, which I think is the source of most of our um, confusion about what happens in the resurrection, where Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So this verse has become a source of worry for many people, as we, we talked about earlier, the sense that, what do you mean, pastor, when I die and go to heaven? and my spouse dies, we're just not going to know who we are? Are we going to float around like nameless, faceless entities um, that have lost all personal identity? Um, and I think this kind of flows into some sort of Eastern type of ideas of what an afterlife might be like. Um, have you ever seen at a funeral, like the funeral video with the, the pictures that scroll along, and there's usually an intro from the funeral home. Yeah. And oftentimes it's like a, a raindrop falling from the sky and it falls into the midst of the sea and is incorporated into the great mass of water. Um, that's not a Christian idea. God creates us as individuals um, and uh, we're uniquely created individuals. And then in the resurrection, we presume that if that's the way he created us, it's the way that, that we remain. So when Jesus says you neither marry nor are given in marriage, he's saying your concerns aren't the concerns of this earthly world. Um, your eyes will be fixed fully and completely on, on Christ. And whatever that means exactly, we'll find out when we get there. We're not going to be, um, uh, you know, finding a spouse or, or looking for someone to take up with. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't recognize who we are. Um, when the patriarchs die, it says they're gathered to their fathers, right? As if they're going to a place where they know those who are there already. Um, so we shouldn't picture ourselves recreating our family life, um, our most idyllic years in heaven as a, a nuclear family or whatever. Um, but we sh certainly should presume that we will know in the way appropriate those who were uh, known so intimately to us in this world. I'm, I'm reminded of, of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, where he's a, approached by his family. The crowd tells him, hey, Jesus, your mother, your brothers are looking for you. And and he says, these disciples, the ones who do the will of my God are my mother and my brothers, such that, that that doesn't repudiate the fourth commandment. It's not that you don't need to honor your father and your mother anymore, but in Christ, the, the family of God becomes key. And in the resurrection, <clears throat> that reality becomes fully seen.
and, and part of that reality is that the matter of marrying and being given in marriage is just not like it is in this life. Uh, again, to, to use that, we can't equate this age with the resurrection. There, not everything transfers one to one. And, and the matter of marriage is one of those things that just doesn't transfer one to one. Not that we wouldn't know each other, right? But that, that we would, it's different. It's different. And marriage itself has a natural end in this life. And I think that's something we forget quite a bit. Um, there was a story in the news today. I, I believe the guy's name is Rory Feek. I think he's a country artist who lost his wife um, in the last couple of years. People were interested in this story because they were Christians and, um, and went through this process of her passing quite publicly. And somebody asked him uh, about uh, why is it that you still wear your wedding band two or three years after she's passed? And he said, because she's still wearing hers. Now, interesting reaction, isn't that? Mm, yeah. um, it's a confession of his love for his wife. Um, and I have no problem with someone wearing their wedding band as a, a sign of that devotion after someone's passed. But it's as if he's forgotten what we vow in, right. in marriage, which is till death do us part. The law of marriage um, is something that does have an end to it. Um, and and it ends in the, the passing of one, one of the, the partners. Um, and that's liberating because it means the other person can move on and, and be remarried, just like this um, hypothetical situation says. Um, but it also lets us know that our hope is not ultimately in some kind of eternal institution of marriage, but in, in something that God gives us for a time on this, this earth uh, as marriage and the eternity, uh, the hope eternal is in Christ. And maybe in the same way as... Uh... As, as we were talking earlier, that Jesus is moving them from a perspective of this life only to life beyond, right? Um, maybe it's helpful to look at um, marriage in this life versus marriage that lasts, marriage eternal. Um, and that takes us to the, the whole concept, the idea of uh, Jesus, the bridegroom uh, for his bride, the church, right? Um, there is a marriage that will, will last forever. There is a mar marriage that matters forever, Right. Um, it's just not necessarily ours to our spouse. And that's not to downplay our marriage to our spouse, you know, in this life um, or to say that it's, you know, and I, I, I think that's a to each their own kind of a deal. Um, it's a, I had, had not heard that story about the, the country singer. That's that's interesting. Uh, I need to wrestle around with that for a minute. But um, no, the the idea that Jesus is um, his relationship towards his church, towards you and towards me, um, that that's what endures. I think that that's that's maybe another angle that we can look at this, and we can say, you know, they're they're these these Sadducees. God bless them. They're asking a lot of the a lot of the right questions, or at least they're they're next door to the right questions. They're kind of beating around the bush and can't quite seem to find their way to uh, to the truth here. And Jesus is the one that's going to bring them the truth, and he's going to say, listen, um, you know, uh, lever at marriage doesn't matter in a place and in a time when people don't die, right? Right. And I think I think we do well to keep that specific question of the Sadducees in mind concerning leveret marriage, because leveret marriage only exists in a world where there is death. Right. And so leveret marriage can't exist in the resurrection because there is no death. And so as, as I don't remember which one of you said it, but this is an invalid question from the get go because they're equating these two things. And, and just as, a, as an assurance. Everything that we've we've talked about in this text is by no means downplaying the importance of marriage in this life and the that central relationship to to human society, the foundation 
to the world, or not, that's not right, the foundation for society that God gave before the fall into sin. This is a key relationship. And none of this is downplaying that by any means. But it is a recognition that in the resurrection, the life eternal, it's going to be different. And it's, it's going to be good because we will be with our bridegroom, Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. On the next Joy, we often share music that was written many years ago, hearkening the church's deep musical heritage. Some wonderful music for reflection has been written more recently as well, and we'll have it for you. This is Ron Clem. Make a modern day plan to join me this week for Joy. Wednesdays at 1 p.m. during Lent on KFUO. I am Pastor Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for your LCMS congregation or organization to become a Church of the Week for a gift of just $595. If you would like, you can split that into monthly gift payments. Also, if you commit to be a Church of the Week between now and Easter, in addition to 35 30-second announcements and your pastor or leader being on one of our programs, we will give you, for your pastor, a beautifully bound Luther's Small and Large Catechisms, compliments of Worldwide KFUO and Concordia publishing house in St. Louis. This small and compact volume has Luther's seal on the front, the pages are gold-edged, and the inside print is plenty large, even for an older person like myself. So contact me to schedule your week. You provide the information for the 30-second spots, and we'll produce them for you. Our thanks to CPH for partnering with us. Call 314-996-1520 to schedule your week today. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, March 17th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46 with Pastor Dustin Beck of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas, Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, and Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. So we're right here in the middle of Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees. He has told them, your question is invalid because marriage in this life is different than what the resurrection of the dead is like. And by the way, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and here's why you should. How does Jesus teach the resurrection of the dead in his answer to the Sadducees? Well, he um, ends up citing Exodus 3, verse 6, a text from the Torah itself, which was authoritative to the Sadducees. Um, And he refutes their denial of the resurrection and afterlife on their own terms. So he plays the same game that they play. Um, He quotes um, from the account of when Moses was uh, called to lead God's people as he encounters God in the burning bush. And there God identifies himself, of course, as the great I am, but specifically as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And what is key there are two things. Number one, uh, the three patriarchs that he identifies um, are so well known to the people, but they are long gone. 
uh, their bones have have been gathered and, and buried. And he says, not I was the God of these people. And that's how you should know. Him. He says, I am. And speaking um, in that present tense um, ends up making the point that he is the God, even of the dead, indicating that the dead are alive in him. So this is one of those cases where it's helpful to know some grammar, the difference between the past tense and the present tense. It's, it's really quite simple. It's quite astonishing. It's, it has always amazed me to, to see how Jesus quotes the Old Testament here. If, if you asked me to, to talk about the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, this is not the first text I would have picked. I don't think I've ever preached on Exodus 3, verse 6 at a funeral. I've preached on Job 19. I, I know that my Redeemer lives. I, I preached on Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever. It is all over the Old Testament. But I probably wouldn't have, have picked Exodus 3, 6. Jesus does. And, and I, I always think that's something worth marveling at. And then just the, the wonderful comfort that is here for Christians, Christians who have died. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. What, what a wonderful thing to be able to say to those whose loved ones have died in Christ. Yeah. And uh, I mean, just to add on to that, not only is he uh, proclaiming that he is uh, the God of, of these folks who have, you know, are long dead, uh, but he's also, you know, just the, the very name of God himself that he reveals there at the burning bush that uh, I am has sent me, right? I am who I am. It's not, I, I was, or, you know, um, there was a time when I was, I mean, it, it in G, uh, God reveals himself to Moses, uh, in his eternal existence, the fact that God always is right. And I think that the Sadducees miss this point too, because, um, like we've said from the start, they're kind of the, um, the, we would call them theological liberals of the day that they don't probably don't believe in miracles, probably are a little bit more critical of the text than we would be as, as, as Lutherans, you know? Um, <laughs> and so they're coming from a place that, you know, God did all of these things uh, way back when, or God gave the Torah, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, but the whole point here is that God is right. That God is. And, and how, how amazing is it? The fact that God is speaking with them right now with the Sadducees, he's refuting them and saying, you don't know what you're talking about because uh, because God is the God of the living, um, even as I live and breathe and stand in front of you. He didn't say that part. I'm adding it, but you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. So so Jesus here teaches the resurrection of the dead, and it is a wonderful comfort for us as Christians. The Sadducees swung and missed. <laughs> so now the Pharisees come back. And and maybe just as a way of, so we've, we've seen the Pharisees before, the Sadducees, now we've got the Pharisees again. Just, Pastor, I'll introduce the Pharisees briefly to us again. Right. So the Pharisees were that most prominent Jewish sect, and they had a certain amount of power that is on display in various points in, in the New Testament. But it was a limited power, of course, because they were under Roman occupation. So they were not self-governing, um, but the Roman authorities would allow them a certain amount of control in seeing to the, the affairs of their own people. Um, but their popularity had to do with the fact that they were popular, almost, almost like a political party with the common man. Um, they were made up of, of different types of people, Jewish authorities and strict observers of the law, teachers of the Torah. And I suppose you could say they had a platform to make Israel great again. Um, oh, yeah. He went there. Miga. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did they have hats? I don't know. Uh, well, actually, they probably did have hats. I don't think they were red. Um, anyway, um, their idea was let's get back to the way it was in the glory days, the days of David. <laughs> And their path to that, they believed, would require them separating themselves from the Gentiles, becoming 
um, a, a people once again that were pure in that sense and a return to a very strict observance of the Mosaic law. So that was who they were, and that helps us understand when they pop up in the Gospels what they were motivated by. Um, and then the Pharisees select from amongst them who's called a man who's called a lawyer, which is not a lawyer in today's sense, not arguing on the civil law, but a lawyer in that day would be one uh, arguing on the basis of the Mosaic law, um, the law of the Torah, who knew um, knew the text very well again. So they select out of that group one who knows the text very well to test Jesus. Um, they're bringing their all-star uh, up to to put him to the test. And isn't it right that the the movement of, of the Pharisees was more or less largely a lay-led movement? I mean, we would think of these as the, the folks that are well-to-do enough that they have um, the money, uh, they're, they're, they have the, um, the time on their hands to actually study the scriptures. Uh, but these, these are not the priests for the most part. I mean, these, these people have seats, some of them in the Sanhedrin, the, the council, uh, but these are not, these are the, the well-informed lay members of the, of the temple, right? Um, and so these folks, uh, yeah, they have power, but it's political power and the power of influence, whereas the Sadducees are a more priestly class. They've, uh, they're the ones from whom the, uh, the chief priest would be chosen each year, et cetera. Um, and so <clears throat> when they come, it's, you really get that impression that Jesus is just getting attacked from every side, right? From, uh, from the, the super political Herodians, uh, yesterday's text, uh, to the, uh, the religious elites, uh, uh, the text that we just studied with the Sadducees. And now, to even the folks in the pews uh, who have read a little bit, the folks uh, who are, I mean, we would call them true believers. They're the ones uh, not as jaded as the Sadducees, but they're the ones that actually take the word of God seriously. Uh, they accept all of the Old Testament, for instance. They accept the resurrection, right? Um, which, uh, isn't it interesting that all of these vying different various parties that usually don't get along, <laughs> um, they can find a common enemy in Jesus, right? Um, the one who brings the, the word of God in truth. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's these guys that, that come to Jesus next. So, and they, they've selected their all-star. You've got maybe uh, David versus Goliath here, the son of David versus, versus a Goliath of sorts. And, and they, the question that he asks, Matthew says it is to test Jesus, but it seems simple enough. What's the greatest commandment in the law? What's the test that's being given here, Pastor Hill? Well, the test is, is essentially laid as a trap, not necessarily to find an intellectual answer to what's the greatest commandment, but if they can get Jesus to identify one thing as the greatest of all commandments, then what will happen is they'll be able to accuse him of de-emphasizing the other things to say that, oh, you, you by saying this is the greatest um, commandment, you don't care about the other ones. So while Jesus' answer that he's going to give is first off right, um, it's also one that doesn't fall into that trap because by answering in, in the greatest commandment and the one like it, um, he ends up summarizing the entirety of the law and showing what is the basis of the entirety of the law if you distill it down. Um, and then you can reconstitute the entirety of the law from there. Um, and that's all, all something that um, it encapsulates uh, what God's will is. Yeah, and this also gives us a framework by which Luther draws in, in his explanation of the commandments. We get the small and large catechism, and in both cases, what he does is he takes this, this distillation of the law and reapplies it to the commandments themselves individually and gives us this broader understanding of the commandment. We should not, we should fear, love, and trust in God that we do not do these various things. And furthermore, we should do these things for our neighbor to help and support them. And all of them are, are rippling expansions of the idea that is contained in the commandment, which is still 
referring back to that primary commandment. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you do this? You don't do these things, and instead you do these things. And here is all some some general listings of the characteristics, which is which is itself not exhaustive. It's just a, a beginning of the understanding of how that all applies throughout the Christian life. So Jesus says then at the end of his answer, this is the perfect answer, of course. This is our Lord. He once again masterfully evades their trap and ends up teaching the truth. And he, he says, at the on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So and Pastor Beck is is he saying, here's a here's a summary of the Old Testament and these two commandments? Um, I think in a way he's saying that. Um maybe also point point out the fact of, of who's actually saying this, right? Because Jesus is the one uh, who comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's it's all about him. Uh, and so maybe between these two commandments and the one who's speaking them, we have the fulfillment <laughs> of the law and the prophets. Was that me weaseling out from under that question? Maybe. 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 Okay. Maybe. <clears throat> well, I, I mean, what this is maybe uh, uncomfortable for us as, as Lutherans. No, not at all. No, never. Right. Well, because no. we start talking about the law. And right. I want to say some sometimes the temptation is to say law, bad, gospel, good. Right. That's not the answer that the scripture gives. That's not the answer the scripture gives, right? Uh, so we're, we're not antinomians. That means opposed to the law. We're not opposed to the law, and neither is Jesus, right? Um, Jesus uh, said all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, to destroy it, to get rid of it, but rather to fulfill it. Um, the point is that Jesus came to, to walk in the law, but he's redeemed us through faith so that we also can walk according to God's ways. Um, we've been set free from sin, and if you look at, Paul's epistles. I'm going to be general now. <laughs> Pastor Hill's ready to Google. The The latter half of the majority of Paul's epistles deal with how we are to walk in Christ, how we are to be Christians, right? Um, no Google necessary for that, right? Uh, and so that's, a, that's a, a helpful thing that Jesus gives to us here is that he's not coming to abrogate the law. He's not coming to get rid of it. And maybe that's, um, I don't know, maybe that's one of the tests that's here is, you know, Jesus, you've You've been forgiving sins and you've been welcoming tax collectors and you've been dining with people that you shouldn't dine with. And we've already accused you of breaking the Sabbath day repeatedly. Right. So, Jesus, which which commandments do you like? Right. Um, is, is Jesus going to say none of them? Well, then they've got them. Like Pastor Hill said, is he going to highlight one to the to the exclusion of, of a whole lot of others? No, maybe. But like you said, Jesus masterfully answers um, in such a way that he uh, he fulfills uh, the expectations of God's law. Um, and he points to us that it's, you know, the law is still good. The law is still there for us. This is a temptation that I think we still face today that we would pit one part of the law against the other. And, and just oh, to yeah. use the two commandments that Jesus mentions, that that somehow I if I would keep the first table that I would break the second or that I would keep the second and break the first, right? As if they can't be kept together. So for, for example, perhaps we, we would justify our lack of heeding God's word, according to the third commandment, by the good works that we do for the neighbor, as, as if they're mutually exclusive, right? Right. And, and I think that, that that's just a temptation that we would fall into, that we would try to use them against each other in an effort at self-justification rather than well, letting Jesus be the one to justify us. I think we all try to play lawyer sometimes. Mm, probably so. Well, the phrase deeds, not creeds right. jumps out there, right? Um, if you're devoted to the first table at the expense of the second, 
uh, you fall into almost a monastic type of, of life of self-reflection, no regard for neighbor. Um, that's not an entirely clear way to cut it, but, but that's a way to think about it. If you focus on the second table without the first, you fall into the deeds, not creeds mentality, or this is what I can distill about morality just from natural law. Uh, and then other things. So they, they do have to go together for sure. Yeah. Yeah. To, oh, go ahead, Pastor. Kessler. I was going to say one of, and one of the questions that comes out of that understanding is this, this idea, well, wouldn't it be better for us to go serve our neighbors on Sunday rather than gathering every single week? Well, it is good, but it, it does. It pits those two tables against each other as if one can exist without the other also existing. Right. And, and Pastor Hill and bringing up monasticism, I mean, you see how in the history of the church, it's, you can fall off on either side. I think, I think you're right that monasticism, uh, a sort of withdrawing from the world is an attempt to, to keep the first table and ignore the second, whereas the, the deeds, not creeds or the, the forsaking of, of the gathering together for service, as if that's, better or or not in concert with right either of these ways you can fall off on either side jesus holds the two together he says here's the first and the second is like it they go together and, and as christians we hold on to both as fulfilled in christ which i think is is a key and helps us move into the final part of our text today so in yesterday's text the herodians and the pharisees came at jesus they missed the Sadducees today, the Pharisees today, three times in a row, they've not been able to trap Jesus. Now Jesus is going to t take his turn and ask them a question. And, and he singles out here, Matthew singles out for us, the Pharisees being gathered together. Jesus asks them a question. What's going on here, Pastor Hill? Well, having um, repelled these three attacks, you would expect Jesus to come at them with something quite complex a quite complex question. I mean, their idea was we're going to take him down by the complexity of what we can ask him because he's not going to be up to the task. Um, he doesn't ask them a complex question. He asks them perhaps the simplest and most important of questions. He says, what do you think about the Christ? And they followed up with whose son is he? But I love that open-ended question. What do you think about the Christ? Um, I think we all struggle with guilt that we don't talk about Christ enough outside of the official um, means by which we do it, right? So being on the radio or in a pulpit on a Sunday morning, a pastor is very comfortable speaking about Christ out of his role. But um, how often do we as pastors and our lay people um, seek to, to have a conversation about Christ in, in areas where people wouldn't expect us to do it? Um, and there are all kinds of methods to start those conversations. You know, there was the one method before that you knock on a door and you say, do you know what would happen if you died uh, tonight? Would you go to heaven or hell? And if you think you go to heaven, why would you go there? Um, that's one way of doing it. Um, but the best method I've seen practiced and um, have, have tried myself um, is you just simply ask somebody, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Right. It's a biblical question. Uh, it's the method Christ himself used, and he's not using it here for evangelism. Um, but by by asking it in that way, you're able to to hear someone's response and, and then have a conversation on, on the basis of that. But um, they're not going to focus so much about what do you think about the Christ as much as the second question is, whose son is he? Because that's the textbook answer that they're going to know um, <laughs> while they'll end up missing that the Christ is standing right before their eyes. Right. I mean, this this is not all that different from what Jesus has asked his disciples previously. What are people saying about he uses the term son of man there? And then he very specifically asks them, who do you 
say that I am. So once again, he's he's bringing everything back to who he is. And maybe they don't recognize that when, you know, they would not maybe say that he is the Christ. But but that's what Jesus is up to. He's bringing things back even more central, perhaps, than the last question he faced about the commandments of the law. Right. We talked about Jesus being the one to fulfill. So so he's got this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Do they give the right answer? The son of David? Yes. Kind of. They can't see your head nods. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're all shaking our heads vigorously. Yes. 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 Okay. So, so yes, the son of David is true, but but Jesus says it's not complete. What does is, what is Jesus do in his answer, Pastor Casper? So he, he, he gives them the next the next punch there. So how can it be if the son of David, if I, if the son of David is David's son, how can David say in the Psalms that he is also David's Lord? How can this be the thing? And the Pharisees are lost on that. What, what you, how can this be? I, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, obviously we have the right answer, right? It's the son of David, but I don't, I don't get how that works. And he, and he just starts handing them a little rope. Here's some more rope. Here's some more. <laughs> What's what? What does he quote? I mean, it's, if you're reading along in your Bibles here, you see in verse 44, it's it's set off as a quote. He's, and Jesus says, "Well, David says this. Where where is he quoting from? What's, so he's quoting from Psalm 110. That's Psalm 110, verse one. The Lord, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so that's that's actually the word of David speaking as this to his Lord. And this is the son of David interaction that's going back and forth in the text or that he's bringing to light for the Pharisees to see and say, Oh, wait a second. So in Psalm 110 then, and this is important when we read the Psalms to know who is talking to whom it, as, as we're reading along there with Jesus in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord. So David is the one talking. The Lord is God, the father. And my Lord is the Christ, right? I mean, is this, is, is, am I understanding Psalm 110 right, rightly? Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, the Psalms can be difficult to read if we don't understand who's talking, who's talking to whom, what, what are we, is, are they talking to me? Is this someone talking to God? Is this God talking within the, the Godhead, right? Which I, I think is what David is, he's seeing a conversation between the father and the son here. And so the question that he's asking the Pharisees here centers on this matter of my Lord, which would be David's son, but also his Lord. How how is this possible? I've always found this this particular exchange to be um, a little hard to wrap my head around, and maybe that's because uh, our context is so different from uh, from the Pharisees. Um, and, and, and that whole, that whole time, you know, a couple thousand years ago, um, uh, because, you know, I mean, what do you think about the Christ? Um, whose son is he? Um, it seems like it would be an, an obvious an answer. Um, they give the obvious answer and then Jesus presses just one more time. Um, and so how can, how can David, uh, call him Lord, you know, by the power of the spirit, right? That seems like such, such a, just like, okay, well, I mean, you got me there, Jesus. Um, but it doesn't quite go like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Instead, uh, when they have no answer, it's like that's the that's the final nail in the coffin of their argument. And any of you ever? I mean, do you guys experience that too? Like this doesn't seem like it's it's nearly as earth shattering as when Jesus, you know, um, 
uh, I mean, probably my favorite one is the um, the give to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. You know, yesterday's text, right? Uh, I mean, when he says that, it's just like I mean, that's I think in the business what we call a mic drop moment, right? <laughs> As we, as a group of pastors sit around microphones, um, drop your microphone. I'm not dropping my microphone. I've paid for a microphone before. I know how much they cost. Um, anyways, no. Um, the the whole idea here that this is the this is the big final you know knockout blow. You can't explain how <clears throat> the one who is to come from the lineage of David. David also calls him his lord. Right. Um, that's always been kind of a a, a conundrum to me. It doesn't. Doesn't make a ton of sense, but as I look at this, um, the the fact that verse forty six takes place, no one was able to answer him a word, uh, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The fact that he shut them down with this, um, I think, if we look at that, that actually is pretty telling, uh, because that the answer that Jesus gives and the question, the unanswerable question for them that he gives, um, that really is right at the root of of the whole Gospel of Matthew. Is this? Who is Jesus? He's God with us. He's God among us. He's God in the flesh right here in front of us. Um, and if this is God, um, then we can't really bring a complaint. We can't really say, are you really? Or what do you say about this? We can't trap him in his own words because he's God. Right. 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 Yeah. No, I think I think that this is the key question throughout this series. I mean, they've, they've come at him with questions about taxes. They've come at him with questions about leveret marriage, the resurrection, with, with questions about the law. And Jesus has answered all of them. Now he comes with the central question, what do you think about the Christ? Who is Jesus? And if you can't answer that question, well, I mean, think, think back to Matthew chapter 16, the keys of the kingdom, right? <laughs> you are the you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. There's the answer, right. and, and that's what they fail to to see. We are just about out of time here, gentlemen. Thank you for being with us today, Pastor Dustin Beck of Holy Cross yes, Lutheran Church in Ward of Texas, Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Lagrange, Texas. Thank you, sir. And Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Thank you. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of the Living God. The question that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of Jesus' opponents couldn't answer and wouldn't believe it has been revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures, in God's Word, that living and active Word for you and for me that gives us Have Jesus you ever wondered Christ, if your investments could do more? Risen. I mean, a whole I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace really- Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>